0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
1: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the front line, discuss Russia's demographic catastrophe, and analyse reports of French armour in use by the Ukrainian army. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us.
2: We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
1: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 3rd of July. One year and 129 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, foreign reporter, Genevieve Hol allen and our economics editor, Sue Chan. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine.
3: Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's start off. There were strikes last night in the Kyiv and Sumy region. Sumy is the, the region to the east of Kyiv, northwest of, uh, of Kharkiv. Kiev's Air Force say that their system successfully shot down eight Iranian drones, that's the the Shaheed 131 and 136 drones, and three cruise missiles, which the Air Force say were all the air targets heading towards the capital. This is the first such attack for about 12 days. There were very frequent bombardments throughout May, but it it dipped recently. We think these dips are when Russia's run out of ammunition and drones what have you, and they're getting the next supply from Iran. But Ruslan Kravchenko, who's the head of the Kiev regional military administration, he said that three private houses were damaged in the capital by falling debris. But there are reports of civilians killed in Sumy. Now onto the battlefield updates. If you picture the map of Ukraine, we've been sp- splitting up this counter or talking about this counteroffensive in terms of south, southeast, and east, south being kind of the Hezon region, southeast almost sort of Zaporizhia directly southeast through to um, Melitopol or Mariupol, that kind of way, and then east uh, is Bakhmut and the, and the Donbass. So starting off in the south, there's been further reporting, which followed, followed on from initial news last week, that Ukrainian forces have crossed the Dnipro River, directly opposite Hezon, we're now in the, in the deep south of, of Ukraine, so these forces are thought to be in the in the vicinity of the town of Aleksey. This is about three k's southeast of Hezon, across the river. A former FSB officer and um, uh, separatist leader leader we've met before, Igor Gherkin, He spoke on uh, Telegram. Uh, on his Telegram channel, he says that Ukrainian forces are superior in number. Ukrainian commanders have greater what he calls organisation skills. And he goes on to say that if that lodgement isn't cleared out quickly by Russia and Ukraine are able to expand that bridgehead, um, the destruction of that force will be almost impossible. He said Russia was making, uh, quote, significant efforts to eliminate the threats now, unquote, but that's not currently working. So we think this is a very small number of forces, Ukrainian forces over the river. Whether or not they're able to turn that lodgement into a bridgehead and sort of expand from there. We don't know, but we'll keep watching that. Then in the southeast, Ukrainian forces have made gains on the outskirts of the town of Robotyne. There are reports Ukrainian troops have hit the first main line of Russia's defence. So a quick back brief on that. We think there are at least two main lines, main defensive lines, various sectors along the uh, along the front in the Zaporizhia area. So if we start at the uh, city of, of Vasilivka, this is on the elbow bend of the Dnipro River. So just where it goes from sort of running east-west to then going north, so that's where the, the town of Vasilivka is. So imagine a line from there going due east, that seems to be Russia's main defensive line. These are properly constructed lines. There's trenches with overhead cover, anti-tank obstacle belts, the full bells and whistles. Now, whether there's the personnel to man it is another question. The force is required. And remember, you've got to cover all obstacles by, by view, that's human and all and technical, and fire for them to be any good. Without that, it's useless. So you've got to have the, the forces there to, to cover it. And we, we're we not sure if Russia have got forces there or if they have been taken further north to fight the counteroffensive in where it currently is or whether they're not there at all, whether they're, they're dead, they've not been mobilised or, or what have you. So just the fact that there are these huge obstacle belts doesn't mean that they can do their job if they haven't got the personnel there. Anyway back to that main line. The main Russian defensive line heads east um, from Vasilivka runs about 10 kilometres north of the logistically very important town of Topmak, And the first line of defence, if you are yeah, from a Ukrainian point of view, the first line of defence is about 5 ks north of that main defensive line. And it's that first line of defence that we think Ukraine has reached in some numbers. Now, Euromaiden, which is a, a Ukrainian news outlet, says the assault is is by small units of Ukrainian troops supported by artillery rather than the full combined arms, effort of tanks, other vehicles, infantry and so on and so forth. So very confusing as a lot of these reports are but they do seem, Ukraine does in some part seem to have hit the first line of Russian defence. Now that's going to require very, very heavy fighting because as I say, these are well-prepared positions. They've been well, well constructed by engineers. But if there's an actual or a likely breakthrough, Russia may have to commit their vital and very sparse reserves. And that is of critical importance because once reserves have been used up, once they're gone, they're gone. It takes time to reconstitute a properly structured and rested reserve. So that's that would be a critical moment for Russia to put in whatever level of reserve we think it might have. And, and we don't assess them to have a very large operational reserve, operational being the south of the country or the east of the country. So yeah, more than just a platoon or a company of, of troops, but a, a much larger force. We don't think they've got that in any significant numbers. But once whatever they have got is uh, committed then that is a very, uh, very significant step. Now, in the east, around Bakhmut, we think Ukrainian troops are continuing to gradually advance on the flanks of the city. The Eastern Ukrainian Eastern Command spokesperson, Sergei Cherovati he told Ukraine national television last night that uh, Ukrainian forces are pressuring Russian troops through the area. We think the centre of the city and possibly the outskirts are being held and maybe even reinforced by elite Russian units such as the airborne troops, the VDV. Because the city is so symbolic. It's the only victory Putin has been able to claim for months – there was loads of razzmatazz and medals all round as if the place was Stalingrad when, it, uh, when they did take it a few weeks ago. So Russia simply cannot allow it to be retaken by Ukraine right now, regardless of, the, of any tactical sense they may be in, in withdrawing. Now, Ukraine obviously know that, know that a lot better than, than us sitting here, and they'll use that to their advantage. So they know Russia have to hold on to that. They know they have to commit forces. So knowing where your enemy is going to be... And the likely strength and the types of units they're going to be using, that is absolute catnip to an intelligence professional. They'll take great advantage of that. Now, elsewhere, a few other updates. There are reports of an explosion in Russia near a military airfield in primorsko aktarsk Now, this is halfway up the, if you like, up the east coast of the Sea of Azov in the southern Krasnodar region of Russia. This airfield is thought to be uh, one of those airfields from which drones and missiles are launched towards Ukraine. Next point, In uh, let's go down to Crimea. So the Russian FSB has claimed that they've thwarted an assassination attempt on the Russian-installed head of Crimea. Russia's security service said it's prevented Serge- Sergei Aksyonov's car being blown up and has arrested a Russian citizen that they say was recruited for the purpose by the security service of Ukraine. This is coming out of TASS, the Russian state news agency. They're saying that this morning. Now, this Russian citizen that we're told was born in 1988, Bit of spurious information. He was arrested after allegedly being recruited by Ukrainian security service and having undergone training in Ukraine before returning to Russian annexed Crimea in June. This is all, like I say, coming from TASS, and they've released a video, uh, or they've shown a video. They say been released by the FSB in which the man is uh, confessing to the crime. Now, Kiev's not yet commented on this arrest, but it does follow other. Recent alleged assassination attempts, you'll remember in September, the Russian-appointed head of Berdyansk in occupied South Ukraine uh, lost both his legs in a car bombing, and in August the Moscow-appointed official in Zaporizhia was killed in a car bomb attack, and that, well, that, that, came, that was reported by the Russian-backed regional administration. Just a couple more, so keep an eye on Poland. Poland's going to send 500 police officers to uh, strengthen its border with Belarus. They are Fearful of Lukashenko and Belarus just tweaking the old migration issue again, uh, weaponizing the migration flow there, and also any potential threat from Wagner, the Wagner Group, as it relocates up um, towards uh, towards that part of Belarus. Now, Poland is going to is going to put these police alongside 5,000 border guards and a, and a couple of thousand soldiers. This is according to Mariusz Kaminski, Poland's interior minister. He said. On Twitter, due to the tense situation on the border with Belarus, I've decided to bolster our forces with 500 Polish police officers from preventive and counter-terrorism units. And just finally, finally, on the updates, Sergei Shoigu has finally popped up. Uh, First time we've seen him since the Wagner rebellion last weekend. He was on TV blathering on about how the army was unaffected and the army is loyal and you know blah 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 so he's turned up so we are still looking for Prigozhin uh, we've heard from him but not seen him and Sorovkin we uh, we haven't seen him at all since that bizarre almost sort of hostage video that we saw 10 days ago of the uprising so yeah two of the two of the main characters potentially involved I say potentially because we don't know what Sorovkin's Sarov- role might have been it's
1: still not been seen in public and I'll take a little pause there. Thank you very much for all of that, Dom. We'll come back to you later for comment on some other stories. Um, Genevieve hull can I go to you? It's been a very busy day on the Ukraine live blog at The Telegraph. Um, quite a few stories to comment on. Where would you like to start?
0: Hi, David. Yes, I thought that the best story to start with today is in The Hague, an international office to investigate Russia over its invasion of Ukraine has opened today. This is the International Centre for the Prosecution of the Crime of Aggression and it features prosecutors from Kiev, the EU, uh, the United States as well as the International Criminal Court, also of course in The Hague. The European Commission announced the creation of this centre, the ICPA, in February with Brussels saying that the centre's ultimate aim was prosecuting those responsible for the invasion of Ukraine. On Monday, Andriy Kostin, who is the Prosecutor General of Ukraine, he wrote on Twitter, It's the beginning of the end of impunity for the crime of aggression. Today, Ukrainian prosecutors are starting their work in The Hague. He added, It's a clear symbol that the world is united and unwavering on the path to holding the Russian regime accountable for all its atrocities, the crime of aggression, genocide and war crimes. And he added, Unfortunately, there is a gaping hole in the international criminal justice architecture regarding accountability for the crime of aggression. The ICPA is one of the building blocks of reinforcing the prohibition of aggression, thus completing and strengthening this architecture. So, what, what the Prosecutor General is referring to here is a, a gap in international law because of which there is no court that can currently prosecute the crime of aggression for the invasion of Ukraine itself. The ICC it has the jurisdiction to prosecute alleged war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide in Ukraine, but it does not cover the crime of aggression because of legal constraints at the moment. And this establishment of the ICPA is broadly seen as an interim step before the creation of a special tribunal that could. Could bring Moscow officials to justice for starting the Ukraine war, essentially to build a case file that could then go to court. And the call for the creation of this special tribunal was the main message, of course, of President Zelensky when he visited The Hague in May, during which he called for uh, what he described as a full-fledged tribunal. And again, Ukraine's top prosecutor, he was talking to journalists today and he said if the crimes of aggression would not have been committed, there would, no, there would be no other 93,000 incidents of war crimes and described today as evidence that the establishment of a special tribunal is now inevitable.
1: Thanks, Genevieve. Talking a little bit more about some of the war crimes, I know we've covered quite a few times on this podcast the issue of stolen children from Ukraine by the Russian Federation. Um, Some interesting statements have come out of Russia about this. Can you talk us through them?
0: Yes. So we've heard a pretty shocking statistic come out of Russia today about uh, these, these Ukrainian children who have been... Displaced, Grigory Karasin, who is the head of the International Committee in the Federation Council, which is Russia's upper house of parliament, he wrote on Telegram on Sunday saying, in recent years, 700,000 children have found refuge with us, fleeing the bombing and shelling from the conflict areas in Ukraine. Ukraine had estimated previously that more than 19,000 children have been illegally transferred to Russia or Russian-held territory. And in July of last year, This is 2022. The US estimated that Russia had um, forcibly deported 260,000 children. So, this figure from Khorasan is significantly larger than these. And we don't know where this figure has come from or or whether or not it is accurate. And as you say, yes, what is happening to these children from Ukraine has been a subject of considerable scrutiny for some time. And on Friday, Ukrainian prosecutors charged a Russian politician and two suspected collaborators with war crimes over the alleged deportation of. Dozens of orphans from the occupied village of Kurzon in September and October of 2022. And speaking of the ICC, again, there is, of course, this arrest warrant out for President Vladimir Putin for the alleged unlawful deportation and unlawful transfer of children from occupied areas of Ukraine.
1: One other rather large story I think we should talk about, Genevieve, um, is the recruitment of spies, spies for the US inside Russia as a result of the full scale invasion. Um, William Burns, the CIA director, has talked about this. What did he say and what do you make of it?
0: Yes, so this story comes from uh, one of our correspondents, James Kilner, and it is, as you say, the head of the CIA has said that the US is seizing the opportunity of a weakened Vladimir Putin to recruit spies inside Russia. He said, and this is William Burns, who has been the director of the CIA since March 2021 and was, of course, a former US ambassador to Russia, He said during the annual lecture at the Ditchley Park Foundation in Oxfordshire uh, that shame inside Russia at Putin's regime and its invasion of Ukraine had created what he described as a a once-in-a-generation opening. He described the war in Ukraine as a strategic failure for Russia and that Putin had turned Russia into a what he described as a junior partner and colony of China. He said disaffection with the war will continue to gnaw away at the Russian leadership. We are not going to let it go to waste. He said a recruitment campaign using social media, specifically Telegram, had been successfully launched. He said we recently used social media, our first video post on Telegram, in fact, to let brave Russians know how to contact us safely through the dark web. He also spoke of the occasional declassification of secrets during the war in Ukraine and leaking them to the media, which he said had wrong-footed Putin. I'm quoting him here. This has denied Putin the false narratives that I have watched him so often invent in the past, putting him in the uncomfortable and unaccustomed position of being on the back foot. Despite of all this, Mr Burns said that Putin remained a dangerous man who harbors great grievances, ambitions and insecurities. The one thing I have learned is that it is a mistake to underestimate Putin's fixation about controlling Ukraine and its choices. And of course, these comments have even more weight following the brief Wagner coup a couple of weeks ago. So again, just adding to Putin as perhaps a slightly weakened character and seeing how the country continues to try and recover following this.
1: Thank you, Genevieve. Any further updates on Putin before we let you go back to the live blog?
0: Yes, just briefly, in fact, Vladimir Putin is to take part in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Virtual Summit on Tuesday, according to state news agency TASS. And this is particularly interesting because this will be the first appearance on the world stage since the Wagner coup. He will, of course, attend by video link to the regional security group which is led by Beijing and Moscow. And eyes will be on Putin, especially keenly here, just because this will be his first appearance in a global context since Ghosn's coup.
1: Well, thank you very much, Genevieve. And to everybody listening, I would recommend the Telegraph's live blog on the war. Genevieve is running the blog today. um, And we look forward to hearing from you tomorrow. Thank you very much, Genevieve. Have a very good rest of the day. It's a Great pleasure to welcome our economics editor, Sue Chan, to the podcast. Sue, we've talked to you a few times before about the impact of the war on Russia and its economy. You've got a really fascinating piece out on the Telegraph website today. If you want to read it, the title is How Russia's Shrinking Workforce is Wrecking Its Economy. Um Sue, can you tell us a little bit about this piece? Why did you want to look at it and what did you find?
2: I've been really interested in demographics for a while, actually, not just to do with Russia, but for the global economy. The world is ageing. And in Russia, the problem is becoming a stark one. So I wrote a piece back in March that sort of laid out some of the issues. And just to sketch that out. So back in the 1990s, before the Soviet Union was broken up, 80% of the the USSR's population were of working age. The UN, before the war, was projecting that to fall to around 60% in the 2050s. And the the share of Russians aged over 65 uh, was projected to rise from 15% in the 90s to 32% by 2050. Now, that in itself is not unusual in the UK we're facing a similar issue across the western world it's pretty much the same but there are a number of factors in russia that are going to speed this process up and back in march i talked about people leaving in their drones in their droves so it's disputed the exact figure whether it's hundreds of thousands or millions many young working age russians men are, are dying on the front line and many aren't having babies because it's an uncertain time. The, a lot of men are out at war. So, one of those factors is going to come back to bite in 20 years' time. But what I didn't realise, and is that how much of this is affecting the Russian economy now with millions leaving the country, hundreds of thousands, millions. I must say that a lot of the statistics that I've found, you got to, some of them you got to take with a pinch of salt, others, we haven't double sourced, but it's all we have. But all these problems are facing Russia right now. And they've got such an acute labour shortage that it, it is affecting the economy in so many ways. And as someone who writes about economics on a daily basis, you're used to flagging economies having high unemployment rates. But what's happening in Russia is that you've got an unemployment rate that is currently 3.2%. You think the economy is going gangbusters, but it's stagnating at best. And that's because there just aren't enough Russians to fill the jobs available. And Russians, they speak openly about it. There's a report issued by the central bank that says one in every two companies at the moment are facing labour shortages. That They're in the industries that you might expect, in sort of heavy industry. There's a shortage of welders at the moment and they just can't find the workers that they need. And they're resorting to stark measures at the St. Petersburg Forum. Last month, there were a lot of HR chiefs talking about lowering standards. So the typical blue-collar worker, uh, a man who might be working in, in that job for years... They might have gone out to to fight and has been replaced by an older worker. Uh, uh, More women are sort of joining these trades. And also, a lot of companies have been forced to raise pay. So at the beginning of the war, a lot of companies, to use the technical term, they use labour hoarding to keep hold of their staff. They can't find skilled people, so they told them, hey, will you cut your hours, do some part-time work? So a lot of companies held on to their staff and in return those staff... They got a wage uh, coming in even though their hours were cut. Now those same companies, because they're hoarding that labour, those workers they're not on the books they're not ready to work anywhere else so it's caused a shortage and that's caused another problem which is if you want to find a decent worker you've got to pony up so on the one hand Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin are planning an 18.5 percent rise in the minimum wage from the start of 2024 which is 10 percentage points higher than they had planned And workers are simply having to pay more. Officially, uh, they're saying that wages are rising at about a rate of 20%. But I spoke to some business leaders that say, "Listen, if you want the workforce, you've got to pay double." And while and all that basically means that while the official inflation rate is 2.5%, that's mainly I spoke to economists to say that this figure looks very low. It's because of low energy costs. Even the Russian central bank governor is saying that this could rise sharply in the coming months.
1: So in your piece, you talk about Putin describing Russia's demographic challenge as one of the few things that keeps him up at night. Could you talk a little bit more about the elites and the political establishment's reaction to this? And I'd love to get your thoughts on whether you think any of the things they're going to try or are trying will actually work. Do you think this looks like a, a robust response to the issues the economy is facing?
2: Yeah, it surprised me too, actually, because... It's very hard to find out what is actually going on. So if you go to official statistics websites to try and find out, for example, how much Russia is burning through its war chest. So it's got a a multi-billion dollar war chest that it built up due to sort of oil and gas revenues and that's been depleted month on month and we try to find out how much have they burnt through this month and there's one figure that's the official figure and you're always a bit skeptical of what's going on but one thing that did surprise me is that Vladimir Putin is very very open about Russia's labour shortages. Uh, There's no hiding about it. And he talks about trying to increase the birth rate. And he's done that for more than a decade. And you you see that in reports. Whether it what will work? I mean, mean, a lot of economists now are talking about post Wagner, whether Russia's focus will be coming be more on whether Russia needs to be more of a war economy. So spending more on guns and tanks and trying to recruit more people but as much as I say I don't, I don't know whether Dom has an opinion on whether that they'll be able to to recruit and I'm not a defense expert I think there's a lot of skepticism at least among economists as to how long it could keep the show on the road and how long or how much money Russia has to bankroll this effort as oil and gas revenues continue to decline.
1: Thank you, Sue. Can I just ask as well, I mean, in your experience as an economics editor, is there anything comparable in your time looking at this area to this? When you look at what Russia's going through, can you point somewhere else and say, oh, well, this is similar to this and this is how they got out of it? I'm curious, as an economics outsider, to what extent is this completely unique or a combination of factors and choices and so on and so forth that is unique or not?
2: Everyone talks about the demographic challenge, about being a challenge for the Western world and also for China, obviously where India's population has taken over China's for the first time and people are talking about whether India's demographic dividend will be a dividend given it's got such a big, youthful population that have nowhere to go essentially just because the jobs aren't there. If you're going to put me on the spot, I would say no, I haven't seen this because... Everything's been sped up and I've been shocked and surprised about how quickly it is. And I guess it's also a reflection of the Russian society. So I was talking to a chap who spent maybe two or three decades helping companies find staff as a hen- headhunter, etc. And one thing that he said to me that, that struck me is that Russians aren't very mobile in a way that perhaps... You know, as a Brit, if I live in Hull and I see an opportunity in London, I might jump at it, move sticks and not think twice about it. But One thing he said was that Russians don't do that. You get very few moving from Vladivostok to Moscow, for example, for a good job opportunity. And that makes the labour situation harder because trying to find someone in your local area, in a town that perhaps men have been conscripted to try and replace them, is even more challenging. And as this situation unfolds, I'm sure I'll be back talking more about this. But everything, all the challenges that the world is facing, the whole world, has been simply sped up at a rate of knots in Russia.
1: Thanks so much, Sue. Just one more question for me, if I may. We've talked quite a lot in the past about the hundreds of thousands of Russian citizens who fled abroad, especially when Vladimir Putin wanted to call them all up to fight. Do we have any more information on them? Well, I guess one of the big things there is, are any of them returning? And what impact does that have on the Russian economy?
2: That I can say from everyone that I've spoken to, and this is a qualitative sample one <laughs> rather than a quantitative one, I'll state that first, is no. So people who've left, who used to work for the state, also a few businessmen. I'm just thinking about the people I've spoken to in the last couple of months. They've left, and they've left with their families. They've set up businesses elsewhere. They're going through visa processes. They're filling out the forms. They're getting through that red tape. You only really do that once. I know I'm thinking of one chap who's gone to Israel. He's driving a bus at the moment, but he's been welcomed by that community Uh, he's of working age i think mid 30s mid to late 30s he's got children he's going to roll those children into schools they're going to make friends he's going to find a job he had a business so he's going to set that up again he's finding a location i think once you put down those roots and you know the brightest and the best in russia will do that i don't think they're going to come back not within a generation anyway
1: well, thank you so much, Su Chan. That was really fascinating. Dom, can I come to you just to comment on a couple of stories? One thing that I think would be interesting to hear your thoughts on is something we've reported. It was from the front lines, and it's about French made light tanks. So our report goes a Ukrainian tank crew died when artillery fragments pierced the thin armour of a French-made light tank, a Ukrainian bat- battalion commander claimed. This is a man who uses the call, spi- call sign Spartanets, said that the armoured combat vehicles delivered by France are impractical, that's his quote, for use in frontline attacks. The vehicle itself is an AMX-10 armoured combat vehicle. Could you talk a little bit more about this story and just flesh out for us some, some understanding from your point of view about these kinds of vehicles and how they're being employed?
3: Yeah, so... Basically, and t- today's not the day for jokes, but, but essentially this is journalistic shorthand that anything that's green and on the battlefield is called a tank. Okay, These things are not tanks. There used to be a, a differentiation between a medium roll tank and a light tank and a heavy tank and all the rest of it. That's largely gone now. So this AMX-10, it's a wheeled vehicle wheels are good on on military vehicles because they are generally faster they are lighter on the maintenance and these days you've got variable suspension and all the rest of it so they they are very very good but they're not quite as good as a tracked vehicle a tank as we all know in our in our mind's eye right now a tank because having those tracks will get you across the most broken ground where wheels just simply can't go yet today of course tanks and tracked vehicles are very high on the, or much higher relatively, on the maintenance requirements, and they don't generally go as fast and, and all that kind of stuff. So there are pluses and minuses to having wheeled vehicles and tracked vehicles in your army, in your military inventory. Generally, tracked vehicles have better, much better suspension and can take a bigger vehicle, take greater weight, and therefore your bigger beasts, your bigger guns, your, dare I say it, your tanks are going to be tracked so your lighter wheeled vehicles are going to have a smaller armament. I think the AMX-10 has a 105mm gun which you know, is a big gun, but most main battle tanks are 120 125mm that's the diameter of the shell that comes out of it, so the shell's obviously a lot longer than that, it's just the diameter so I think AMX-10 has a, a reasonable gun but because it, partly because it's wheeled, it's not very heavy, and that and the weight is largely in the is in the engine to to shove the thing, and the armor armor is where the real weight is. So these are light a light skinned vehicle. They're not Humvees. They're not Land Rovers. They're not soft top vehicles. They are more armored than that. They are supposed to be able to put up with shell splinters from an artillery round landing nearby i haven't got the stats close to hand for how close they're supposed to be able to put up with what type of caliber artillery but in british parlance I mean, we don't use uh, we don't use amx-10 they're french exported to a number of different countries but that sort of caliber of vehicle we uh, the dogs of war as we as we call them in afghanistan the husky mastiff ridgeback cougar whatever else there was But they were known as battlefield taxis. They're to get the infantry to the fight, not to be with them in the fight. So this vehicle, AMX-10 depending how you use it i don't know how the ukrainians were using it but it's not ideally suited for the deeply intense contact battle with the enemy they're to get you there and then they should move off to a, a flank and cover the assault as you go in so this report was of a vehicle that was penetrated i don't think it was hit directly by an artillery round but there's very very few vehicles i don't think any can put up with a direct hit from an artillery round on the turret or on the vehicle it's going to it's going to go through but i but you know they should at a certain distance away the shell splinters are not going to have the impact when they hit the side but obviously if it lands close then it will perforate the vehicle so penetrate get in perforate to get in and go out the other side and i think that's what's happened here so it killed we think one or either more of the i think it's a three-person crew in an amx 10 so yeah so a number of things to take away but we don't think it was a a tankity tank if, if you like we should try and hold the differentiation between what is a tank and what are other military vehicles try to see past try and see through the journalistic shorthand i mean i do have a certain it's one of the small grassy knolls that i'll die on but it's difficult to describe other things without saying a tank and so as long as it's not a, a green army vehicle then i don't really go into bat too often with the sub editors about that now a wheeled vehicle i would do i would not call that a tank i would call it an armored personnel carrier but journalists when there's subs are looking for to save word count they'll just call these things tanks so you need to educate ourselves as to what is a what do we mean by tanks and why this is it's bad obviously that the thing's been defeated and the crew have been killed but if you think about how it's employed and how it should be employed and what what any vehicle on a battlefield is able to put up with then just we just need to get it all in perspective but yeah so this is this is this is obviously not good for ukraine but i don't think it speaks of a fundamental weakness in their doctrine and how they're employing these vehicles i don't think this was being used as part of a kind of a massed charge of all these vehicles towards the enemy position that's not how you should use them and i don't think there's any suggestion that that is how this one was being used when it was hit
1: Tom, before we end, can I ask you to talk about another tragic story?
3: Yeah. So this is the very sad news that friend to the Pod, and award prize-winning author, essayist, and war crimes reporter Victoria Amelina has uh, has died. She's the thirteenth victim, thirteenth person to die from the strike last Tuesday evening in Kramatorsk at the pizza restaurant in Kramatorsk. Thirteen now died, and I think six old injured. Uh, Victoria, she uh, as I said, she was an author, first of all. She won the 2021 Joseph Conrad Literary Prize. She's been nominated for loads of other major awards, including the European Union Prize for Literature. She was one of Ukraine's most renowned young writers uh, and has recently turned to documenting Russian war crimes. She was having dinner with a number of Colombian journalists at the time. They were injured. I uh, don't think any deaths in in that group. Last year, Victoria unearthed the diary of, of a chap called Vladimir Vakilenko. He's a, another Ukrainian writer who was reportedly abducted and killed by Russian forces in the town of, town of Izium, up in the uh, or north of, um, of Bakhmut, up in the Donbass there. And Victoria, she had continued writing. She was working on her first non-fiction book in English called War and Justice Diary, looking at women, looking at war. But she had largely set aside her writing career. After the full-scale invasion last year, and was focusing on documenting war crimes and working with children affected by the war, particularly children right up in the front-line areas, she spoke to us last November, I think, and then she came in here to our London studios, sat in this studio in April. We have very, very shocking news today, very sad to hear, and uh, and yeah, if ever, if ever it, uh, it had to be, it brought it home once again, the
1: terrible, terrible price of this war. Thanks, Tom. It was a pleasure and an honour to speak to Victoria over the past year, and a special pleasure to welcome her to the Telegraph in April. Our thoughts are with her friends, family, and colleagues in their morning and we look to a future where the people who murdered her are brought to justice. Dom Nichols, can I go to you for your final thoughts?
3: Yeah, thanks, David. Well, it, it's sticking with Victoria, if I may. I saw, uh, I saw this morning some film of uh, Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister. Don't know where he was, blathering on. Uh, He's trying to justify the Kramatorsk attack, and I just—I was watching it, and I realised I found that I am no longer energised by the words from these people as I—I might have been, as I was in the past when my response came from the from the emotion of being disgusted by their behaviour and the anger at watching them attempt to justify their actions when we all know and they know that they're lying, but instead. Now, this morning, since the news of Victoria's death and and seeing Lavrov, I found that it a different emotion. It's not pity; um, that's too cliched, and obviously has its root in in emotion. But I find I understand them better, and and I'm just able to ignore them. And I was examining my thoughts this morning, and the reason I think I'm able to ignore them and find a certain a certain peace, I might I might venture, um, is that these people are hardwired into thinking and acting the way they do by decades of being a uh, petty and weak society, too scared to stand up to the brutality of the system and the culture they've allowed to develop. They are are scared and wary people, afraid to show any humanity or vulnerability because that would offer an advantage to an, an opponent, as they would see it. This is their identity. It's in their DNA. They choose to perpetuate this rather than by showing real human strength, and by putting the hard yards in to change things and change themselves in order to make life a little bit better for Russia and basically everyone in in the world. And I think this is their choice. They are choosing to be weak and pathetic and to trot out the lies and idiocy because they haven't got the strength or the nobility to do anything else. And I find myself thinking that, fine, if that's the path that they choose then I choose to ignore them. And I choose to listen only to people like Victoria because in losing her, we are reminded that you can't silence a free person. All you can do is kill them.
1: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash UkraineTheLatest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. If you want to hear Ukraine the Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the Latest on your preferred podcast app and... If you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter and Giles Gear, And the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.